thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you have enjoyed your time of worship this morning and uh, that you are looking forward to opening the Word. Uh, I hope that your week has been a good way, or a good one, uh, that you somehow found a way uh, to differentiate this week between last week. I know it's difficult. Days are running into days for me. Uh, I'm not really sure what day it is half the time. Um, and so if you're anything like me, I hope that you're finding some sort of way to order your week. And if not, hopefully Sunday is at least a good starting point for you. You see, this morning we're going to be uh, picking up and finishing chapter 9 of Mark, and we'll be looking at verses 38 to 50. We've been away from Mark for a a couple of weeks, and so I want to recap quickly what's happened in this chapter because it's pretty important. You see, from uh, the first eight chapters, we see Jesus interacting a lot with Pharisees and, and teachers of the law. And then starting in ver- or chapter 9, Jesus uh, ascends the mount, and we see his transfiguration where he reveals himself to his disciples. And now we see why uh, we've decided to call this the servant king, why Mark is, uh, is known for uh, displaying Jesus as the servant king, because he comes down and he serves uh, a man who is uh, afflicted with demons and uh, his disciples were unable to do that. And so we see this man who is king over all as revealed on the mount come down and serve the people. And then right after that, him and his disciples head to Capernaum and his disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest. And when they arrive at their destination, Jesus gives them a teaching that in order to be the greatest in the kingdom, we would need to be like a child of their society. We would need to be utterly dependent upon the king. And we pick up today in the tail end of this conversation. So they're still in Capernaum. They're still uh, having dinner or something along those lines. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 38. But before we get to Scripture, I'm going to ask that you would pray with me. Close your eyes and bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, as we open your word, as we are encouraged, as we have spent time worshiping, Lord, as we get ready to to hear from you this morning, uh, would we be attentive? Lord, I ask that I would become less and you would become much, much more. Father, that if I get in the way, I would... Uh, quickly pull myself out of that position. Lord, that you would be made much of today. You would be magnified, uh, that you would get all the glory that you are due. So, Father, as we get ready to look at your word, uh, would you uh, just be with us during this time? We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, and like I said, we're going to be in chapter 9 of Mark. If you haven't turned there, turn there now. We're going to be chapter 9, verse 8, and here's what it says. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where their worm, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Some of those passages, verses might be pretty familiar to you. Others might not be. But what we see in these passages is a pretty familiar pattern from throughout the Gospels. You see, we see someone pose a question. In this case, it's John. And then Jesus gives a response, a clarification, and ultimately application. And so let's take a look at the question that's being asked without ever actually being asked. You see, John says to Jesus in verse 38, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And what John is really saying is really simple. He wants to know who's in and who's out. And on the surface, the question can seem pretty innocent, pretty innocuous. He wants to make sure that he's on the right side of things. But the problem is this. He's acting the same way as the Pharisees. You see, they were constantly looking to define their boundaries so that they could be right. The questions they asked and directed at Jesus throughout the Gospels tended to fit in that vein. They want to know, how do I make sure I'm not one of them? One of the sinners. One of the unrighteous one of the ones who don't keep the law. And Jesus, his answer is almost always the same too. He asks a simple question or a variant of it and generally tends to have this flavor, do you love me? And we learned last week from Mike that he continues to ask that same question. And in these verses, the question and answer are similar. See, Jesus asked this question, do they do these things in my name? If so, then I get the glory. And here's what he ultimately is telling them. I will take care of them, good or bad, right or wrong, righteous or unrighteous. So to answer Peter's question, or John's question of who's in, Jesus says, let me worry about that. You see, Jesus is the judge. He's the one who knows their hearts. He knows why people do the things that they do. All we can do as humans is speculate, and that does no one any good. 
Instead, we should think back to what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is, is, who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, Jesus knows those who are his. And this is both ultimately comforting and wholly terrifying. See, there's no fooling him. So rather than try and judge motives, we should do what Jesus says in these verses. We should look at the message that is being shared by others. You see, is it about Jesus? It's all good then. We need to ask, how can we come alongside and strengthen that message? Is it not about Jesus? Are they not proclaiming his name? Great. We have a chance to share the good news about Jesus with them. There's only two places for us to be, either with Jesus or against him. And it's really that simple. And so those are our options. And if you're not really sure what this would look like in a, a, a day-to-day setting uh, of how do, I, uh, how do I actually love someone who might be preaching uh, God, who might be preaching Christ for wrong reasons, someone who we actually know might have bad motives, well, we look to Paul. Paul in Philippians 1, he knew people had bad motives. He knew that people were looking to stir up trouble for him. And in verse 15, this is what it says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. You see, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm being put here for the defense of the gospel. And here's where we need to pay attention. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, Paul understood, even in the midst of being in prison, even in the midst of people stirring up trouble for him, all that matters is that people hear about Jesus. This is, doesn't mean we accept wrong teaching, heresy, or the like. Rather, we must know the message of the gospel so well that we are able to identify it even when it might not look its best due to the one delivering the message. We must care about the message more than the method of delivery more than the mode or mood of worship. We must prize his glory above all else and say whatever it takes to make you greater, I'll do it. You see, we must, in the words of the hymn writer, be joyous as we sing, take the world but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face my Lord I see. You see, we cling to the cross, knowing it's the only thing that is sure in this world. And he's saying, trust in me, trust in my judgment, trust in me to make the right call, trust me to know what's best. 
You don't have to worry about who's in and who's out if that is where your heart is, if you are earnestly clinging to the cross. And then Jesus continues. He's going to emphasize some more, but it seems as though he might jump the tracks here because we pick up in verse 42 through 48 and it gets weird. There's just no way around it. The, the language is bizarre to our modern ears. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. And if you are thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And first off, let me tell you this. He is absolutely connecting these two thoughts together. That they're, uh, He's connecting the question and his answer with this statement. They are not separate. And what he's saying is stop worrying about others and start worrying about yourself. You don't have to be worried about others' message or, or whether or not they're in. You need to be worried about you. Don't worry about what others are doing. You've got issues of your own that need attention. And secondly, this, this passage is hyperbole. You see, Jesus is using strong language to make the point memorable. He's urging the disciples to look at their sins differently, to look at their own lives far different than they tend to. You see, our tend is simple. We minimize our sin. We play the comparison game and judge others. We judge ourselves against other people. Almost always people who we know are worse than us who are sinning in more egregious ways, whose acts are more scandalous, and so in comparison, we feel much better about ourselves. We play games where we hear ourselves saying some of these statements, it's not that bad, really. Everyone else is doing it. It's not really that big of a deal. You see, we use all sorts of language to minimize and duck our sin, what we try and do is we domesticate our sin instead of destroying it. And the language Jesus uses might be hyperbole and over the top, but we do not soften the message of it. We must stop thinking of our sin as something we could handle. Here's why. It, this is important because if you and I minimize our sin, we minimize our need for a Savior. If we think that we can do this thing without Jesus, we think that we are good enough on our own. We can work hard enough, be good enough, act holy enough without God. This isn't true. Jesus wants us to see the seriousness of our sin in order that we would see our great need of him as our Savior. The message that sin tries to feed us is this. It's not that you aren't good. It's simple. You really aren't all that bad. And we buy into it. You see, it plays to our ego and seeks to lull us into a false security apart from God. 
Jesus is saying, whatever it takes to rouse yourself to the depth of your sin and recognize that you need him, do it. Recognize that apart from Jesus, there is not one part of you that is not affected by sin. That goes for me and anyone else listening to it. This is the human condition. Jesus is making it clear for his followers that it is not whether someone else is right with God. You first must be right with God. My horizontal relationships have no bearing on eternity. Focus on the vertical one. Focus on the one who reached into our mess and said, let me step in. Let me be the one to take on your sin so you can be saved from it. For Jesus, the language of this passage doesn't go far enough. You see, he will be cut off from the Father on the cross in order that you and I will never have to experience that. You see, the message that Jesus is saying is take your sin seriously. Realize that your sin is great, but our Savior is greater. And so he is making it clear through those passages that we need him. That we need to focus on ourselves before we can try and focus on other people and their issues. And that is a common theme. Plank and a speck in someone's eye and a log in our own. All of those are getting to the same idea. We need to take care of our own business before we can try and help others. We need to focus on our relationship with our Father before we uh, destroy our relationship with others and our self-righteousness. And he says, once you do that, once you have worked through your own issues, once you realize that you need me and you accept me, he says something amazing. Tells us to be salty and to be at peace. Verses 49 and 50 say this, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Underline that last phrase. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That is the application that comes from this passage. And there are three points of application we can pull out. The first is this. Look at your own life and examine your motives. Verse 49 starts off by saying, everyone will be salted with fire. And for me, that was a super weird phrase. Because we, you and I, did not grow up in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But for Jesus' audience, it made perfect sense. He's bringing his, his listeners to Leviticus 2.13, which says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. You see, this sacrifice, the sacrifices that were made unto God uh, under the grain offering uh, regulations were to be salted and burned. And in the same way, what Jesus is saying is this, our lives are meant to be a sacrifice unto him. We should be salty. And that simple, our, our actions should be worthy of him who is salt himself.
Christ calls us to be salt and light, and he is the embodiment of it. And if we are to reflect him, we then are to also be salty. So we should season uh, our, our offerings with salt. We should season our life with him. Our actions should be worthy of him, as should our motives. You see, our lives are a sacrifice, and in order to be with God, it took him sacrificing his son on our behalf. He's no stranger to what it looks like to lay his life down. And so when he asks us to do it, it's not difficult. It's not difficult for him to empathize and recognize uh, what this means. And then he gives us a great hope. Because the second point of application is this. We live with Christ in us. The way it's written is live with Christ in you. And that is not a mistake. It's not a weird phrasing that's pulled from Scripture. You see, the, the final part of 49 and the beginning of 50 says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And the idea is simple. Live according to your nature. Live according to the new nature. That's what we live according to. We don't live in the old nature of the flesh. We live in the new nature of Christ. Paul talks about this new nature and commends believers not to go back to our old ways. And Jesus is saying the same thing, just in a different way. He's telling us not to cut down the purity of what he's done. We can't try to add to Jesus. When we do that, all that happens is we make less of him and his work and more of ourselves and our selfishness. You see, in Colossians 1, verse 27, Paul, while talking about the gospel, says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery is the gospel. This is what he says, this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The secret of the gospel, the, the hidden knowledge that Paul was was trying to get rid of in Colossians, in, at the church at Colossae, was simple. Jesus is now in you. He is in you and I. Listen, he's not next to you holding your hand. He's not in front or behind you leading your way or pushing you forward. He is in you. The reality is simple. You and I were once dead. We had no life and no hope. A dead man can do nothing for himself, but suddenly God in grace gives us Jesus and he comes and takes up residence and our hearts begin to beat and life is restored in him. The only reason we can do anything for him is because he is in us. It's easier to stay salty when we remind ourselves it's never been about us. It's about his work in us, through us, and around us. So we look at our lives and examine our motives, and we live knowing that it's not us that makes us good enough or holy enough or acceptable. It's Christ in us, and it's him that's empowering us and keeping our relationship right with God. And then Jesus says, since your vertical relationship is now taken care of, let's talk about the horizontal ones. 
And the third point of application is this. Be at peace with his bride. Be at peace with everyone, but in particular, this passage is saying, be at peace with his bride. We need to be mindful of our relationships with other believers. You see, John's initial question was simple. What about the people who are casting out demons in your name, but aren't following you? And Jesus is saying, if they're mine, they're mine. He'll take care of those who are his. And for us, we too take care of those who are his. Sometimes this means correcting, rebuking, bringing under discipline. Other times it means celebrating, mourning, striving forward with one another. You see, we must love one another. Let us consider Paul's familiar word from 1 Corinthians. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the great honor, and are unpresentable are treated with greater modesty, which is more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, we need to live at peace with one another. It's not even thinkable to say that we would destroy our own body. So why do we destroy his? Our call is to love his bride through disagreement, through uncertainty, through periods of great joy and triumph. No matter what we are, no matter what we're experiencing, we are to live at peace with one another. You see, this is how the world knows we are his disciples. Our job is simple. We are to be, we are to be salty. We are to be at peace. We are to live in the power of Christ in you and me and be at peace with his people. We would be embodiments of the servant king if we would do those things. If we would recognize that it is his power within us and his people who we come into contact with daily. You see, C.S. Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, culture, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. No, we must play but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumptions. Listen, we as a church, not just our local body, but the church as a whole have to understand this call from Jesus is meant for all of us at all times. We are to be at peace with his people. 
We cannot cut each other down. We must listen to the message over the method. If the message is about Jesus, love that person. Encourage that person. You might not get what they're doing or why they do it, but make sure that they know they are loved by Christ and you love them the same way Christ does. Our job is to encourage those who are proclaiming the name of Jesus, and that should be each and every one of us. And so the the great hope of Mark 9 is this, be salty, be at peace. Don't complicate it. Get your relationship with the Father straight and then be straight with other people. It is my encouragement for you today and my challenge for myself is to be salty and live at peace. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, as we consider a call to reflect you, to to bear your very nature, that all of our conversations, that everything we do would be sprinkled with the flavoring of your, your son, that we would look more and more like your son. Father, as we uh, are challenged by your text, as we are challenged by uh, the truth of your word, would we also be encouraged, knowing that it is your power within us, it is, it is your very nature uh, that has replaced our own, that enables us to go and love our neighbors, to go and love other believers, and that we should do this better than anybody else. Lord, where, where culture does this better than us, shame on us. Would we step in and say, uh, no, this is what it really looks like, not out of arrogance, not out of haughtiness, but out of uh, a deep desire that people would recognize you as they see us. So, Father, be with us as we go. Be with us as we interact virtually this week or if we uh, are working still out and about in the world. Would we be salt to a world that desperately needs it? Would we not try and fill ourselves up with anything other than you? Would we not try and add to you? Would we proclaim that it has always been you and you alone? We pray all these things in your name. Amen.